Welcome to Authentic Jewish Living with Yiska, our journey into finding our own authentic expressions within the Jewish tradition. This indeed unfolds the path to encounter the divine within each one of us. As always, I hope that today's episode will help you understand that authentic living in fact is a spiritual practice and that authentic living is essential to the Jewish way of living. Welcome everyone, Baruchot Habaot, Baruchim Habaim. This month's conversation, as with all, will highlight the diversity, the dynamic texture, and varied landscape that expresses and honors authentic Jewish living. I will be in conversation today with a special and unique personality in the Jewish world whose voice needs, must, must be heard by many, by all people who seek inspiration, encouragement, and support to be true and faithful to their inner selves. With excitement, with joy, and with gratitude, I am honored to be in conversation today with Rabbanit Nechama Goldman Barash who I am privileged to also call my friend. And she's definitely my teacher. Welcome. Welcome, Nechama. Thank you, Yiska. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. And I'm, as always, looking forward to being in any kind of conversation with you. It's great, isn't it? We seem to do it well together. Absolutely. So by way of introduction, Rabbanit Nechama Goldman Barash teaches Talmud and Halakha with a specialty in matters of gender and Jewish law at Pardes, at Matan, and a B'nai Akiva Gap Year program. She has spent the last 30 years studying rabbinic texts on a wide range of topics and is certified to answer questions in the area of sexual intimacy governed by the women's menstrual cycle, known as the Family Purity Laws, Taharat Mishpacha reaching a wide range of students and couples with her innovative approach. Nechama also participates in interfaith dialogue through Roots, a grassroots movement in Gush Etzion, promoting nonviolence and understanding between the Palestinian and Israeli communities. Wow, so important. She is currently writing a book on gender and Jewish law. So, Nechama, before we dive into my uh, traditional four questions, Manish Tanaha podcast, Hazem, we call it podcasting, yeah. uh, is there anything you want to share with us right now in terms of your work, what you're doing in particular that you would like us to know? In, in light of such a diverse, incredibly uh, impressive uh, bio, so I'm going to jump in. I'm actually coming from uh, a Zoom interfaith dialogue meeting in which um, I was really blown away 
by questions of legitimacy and authenticity and different religions and the core belief of faith which leads to a particularism in, uh, in religious belief and yet how do you sustain your own identity without delegitimizing uh, the others? And so um, I'm really coming from this, this wow. conversation we had uh, with a, a Christian theologian who's also a Palestinian. And um, he's written a very interesting, I read uh, chapter nine of one of his early books where he argues using scripture that the, the Christians, that Jesus essentially uh, is the true son of Abraham and there has been a replacement of the covenant. Uh, and, and as I read the, the text, I was, I was stricken by how um, particularist it was, right? Here there is, there's this whole faith-based faith -based doctrine uh, based on interpretation of scripture, something I spend my life doing. Um, and there was no room for me in the, in the theology. Right. And then we had this beautiful discussion where he um, contextualized, right? He didn't want to minimize his own faith and belief in Jesus as his Lord and Savior, uh, and, and his belief that really everyone should come to accept that. At the same time, he felt that he could sit side by side with others and love them and accept them. Um, and, you know, it led to a lot of uh, interesting questions among the Jews in the group um, who felt that, well, how do, you, how do you justify a kind of replacement or secessionist uh, theology when ultimately that leaves no room for other theologies? And, um, and it was interesting because I didn't see it that way. Uh, what I brought to the table was that, first of all, I think Judaism has its own particularistic text that completely delegitimizes other people's beliefs. Um, I didn't want to say it in this very small, intimate group, although I, uh, you know, the Jews in the group certainly know these texts, but we consider the Christians to be idolaters. And, uh, and, and if we use the classic model of idolatry, of the law, how we treat idolaters who refuse to embrace monotheistic faith, uh, you know, technically they are worthy of a death sentence. Now, we never did that because we never had the power, because we were reluctant to use violence as a means of achieving an end. But we have our own particularism, and yet I'm listening to the theology and also hearing this man say, but I want to be in dialogue, I want to learn to see the Tselem Elohim in other people, or I, I fundamentally believe that we were all created in the image of God. And, you know, I, I couldn't help but reflect on how many conversations I've had as a woman with those who are far to the right of me religiously, don't really feel that I have a seat at the table, not to mention, Iskai, you know all the work I do as an advocate for religious LGBTQ members of our community, how many delegitimizing conversations, how we're not asking for legitimacy, or maybe, you know, there's a spectrum, but I would be more than comfortable if we can all come to a place of love and tolerance and acceptance as oh. a starting point, right? As a starting and, point. And here we are in this conversation, and I don't want to keep going back to our history. Uh, I, what I was interested in is, you know, I don't need to legitimize you, or to like, I don't need you to legitimize me because I have my belief, but I do want to listen to you, and I do want to get rid of ignorance and fear as I sit in conversation, even when I hear things that are difficult to hear. And so... Um, I found it to be startling and interesting and challenging and uh, reminding me a lot of some of the questions you asked about authenticity and, um, and 
authentic living and how do you find truth and how do you seek truth? And so really I'm just coming from that right into Incredible. this podcast. Incredible. Did you feel marginalized? So I, I really didn't. After When I read his chapter, and this is so important, I really do want the listeners to, to, to pay attention to this next line. We often read things, and as someone who's writing a book, I think about my readers all the time. What are they going to think when they read this? When you read something someone wrote, I read one chapter of the book. I didn't read the whole book. We read a chapter. And then I listened to the writer explain what he intended or what he <laughs> meant. I recognize that there is power to the written word above and beyond what the writer often intends, right? That's a, a danger or a challenge we, we face when we decide to write because ultimately it can take on a life of its own, especially if only pieces of what we write are excerpted and so on. Um, but it made me realize how important it is to invite the writer to come and be part of a conversation because we had spent uh, the previous dialogue talking about this work and, 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 you know, and again, it was definitely marginalizing. I read it and I thought, well, where am I in this conversation? And then from the very beginning, he made it clear this is scriptural interpretation. And he's not talking about the 21st century or how we should be in, you know, how we should be relating to our Jewish neighbors. And I thought, oh, that's missing from the chapter, meaning this is theology. This is scriptural interpretation. This might even be theology. But it's not necessarily reflective of what he wants to impose or how he wants to interact with, uh, with, with the Jews or the Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims that he comes into contact with. And that distinction is so important. And, and he said five years later he wrote a book. He was far more hardcore five years ago. And in the five years he softened. And he's mellowed out. He's mellowed and he's written another book. And he, he even said that he's considered to be a liberal among the, you know, among, among his, you know, uh, among the circles that he's in because he's come to believe that uh, in this kind of, um, I don't, the, I don't want to paraphrase, but I'm going to use a kind of coexistence where I don't have to impose or force upon you a belief system, even if I don't agree with your belief system. I thought, wow, I live in that space all the time with people who don't agree with me, and yet I want to sit in, I want, in my own communities, right? And yet, can we listen to each other? Can we open ourselves up to listen to ideas that threaten us a little bit? And at the same time, do we have to become defensive and aggressive hmm. to shut down other people's interpretations, perceptions, theologies, beliefs, and so on, in order to justify your own. So really, I hope not. Yeah, I hope I not. Hope I agree not. with you. My, I hope not. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. My whole life is about trying to, to, to answer that, to say yeah. I don't want to be um, defensive, but I do recognize that the hardest times for me are um, where I'm with people who don't, want to, who don't want to listen, who don't want to let me have a voice. Right. right. Whew, that, is, that is big. Mm-hmm. That is really big, especially with all the external unrest going swirling around us today there's if there's ever in america and and europe yes yes if there's ever a time to sweeten the severity Mm it's now yeah yeah Yeah. so my four questions yes yes so nahama within a jewish framework Mm -hmm. how do you understand the phrases authentic living living my truth uh, inner integrity. How do you explain or understand that? So, Yiska, um, you're asking a question that I think you know defines my life journey, and uh, and 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 you know it's something I try to impart to my students as well. I, I teach both in Orthodox and non-Orthodox spaces, 
and I meet a wide range of, of students and, and men and women and, and, and non-binary and everyone, in, you know, ev everyone who comes um, searching for a kind of inner truth. Uh, you know, had, a lot of times I think to myself, the, the, the phrase Sadiq Vyashar, right? Um, I have to be Sadiq Vyashar to myself and to, uh, and, and to the world that I come from and the covenant that I believe in and the learning that I do and my family, and, and you know, there's so many pieces that make us up, make, make up layers of us, and you want to create a composite, a wholeness of the composite pieces. Um, and the question is, is sometimes the whole smaller than the pieces, or are sometimes the whole is greater than the pieces? Um, when I think of those phrases, authentic living, you know, finding an emet, or being tzaddik v'yashar, um, that sometimes really puts me into conflict with some of the tenets of, uh, of traditional Judaism or traditional Jewish belief. And, uh, you know, there were many years I was afraid to even express or articulate questions that I was having or a belief system that I had become more connected to. And, you know, one of the advantages perhaps of being the age that I've become, uh, you know, I'm now 51, is being a little less afraid or a lot less afraid, not having to look over my shoulder all the time, recognizing there is legitimacy to the learning that I've done and the choices that I've made. Uh, and, and you know, trying to, to discover my voice. And I, I, I'll, I'll quote a teacher of mine, Rev. Ariel Holland from Matan, when I graduated uh, Matan's Talmud program, 17, you're talking about 16 years ago. Um, one of the things he said, and it's so so interesting, and you know, you know, sometimes someone says something, and and you just take it with you. It it, yeah. it is that yeah. moment, that seminal moment, where everything that happens after is as a result of that. And and his voice was really the culmination of other people who inspired me. But what he said to us at the graduating uh, meal was, um, "Find your voice, each of you." Right? He he gave me permission to have a voice, and he was my Talmud teacher, and it was after three years of studying Talmud, and he was a he, he still to this day looks like a Haredi man uh, and he's a very interesting person and a very, he's a tremendous uh, spiritual and a Talmud Chacham. Um, but it was more that he looked us all over and said, you each need to find your voice. And, and suddenly I said, I he have a voice that? and I can find it. Yeah. You, you, you 17 years ago. 17 years ago. I was in my 30s. I had had my fourth child. I was trying to figure out what to do after finishing this three-year Talmud program. I recognized that I wasn't at the top of the class. I wasn't going to be be hired uh, to teach Talmud on that level at the time. At, at that time, I couldn't have. Now I could. I could. But um, he looked at us all directly and said, "Find your voice." And I said, "Okay, that's 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 my calling. That's the authentic living, finding out what my voice is as a woman and as a Jew and as." Uh, the product of my family and and so on and and that's what I started to do. Perhaps it's it's the voice of the cold the mamadakat within. Yes, very it's still uh, small. Yes, yes, yes. It was this awakening. It's all I can uh, beautiful express it as. And you know, it hasn't been easy. And mm -hmm. as you know, when you start something, you kind of already want to be there. And it <laughs> takes many years until you realize, oh. oh, I'm developing a voice. And when students start saying to you. Oh, you have such an interesting way of teaching, and I'm like, really, I'm teaching Masechet Brachot. Haven't you learned it already a number of times? No, you teach it differently, right? You have a different voice when you you teach text. I thought that those, you know, that was very reaffirming that there there is something of myself that I bring to the teaching and the learning that I do. And uh, it's the same Masechet, 
Yeah. It's the same tractate in Talmud, but it's you teaching it. Right. Yeah, the PSS actually talks about that in Savasi Ruz. How each one of us, not only the giants, not only the leaders and the great Sadiqim and the Talmidei Chachamim, he gives an example comparing the Rambam and the Ramban. How you could tell when you learn a piece of Torah, oh, this is definitely the Rambam. No, this has got to be the Ramban. Oh, no, this is Nechama's class. Right. Without even, yeah. Right. yeah. Right. Right. Kavod. Wow, right. thank you for that. So the second question is, mm -hmm. what is your go-to, your favorite go-to Torah teaching that expresses your personal sense of your Jewish identity best? If you had yeah, to choose one. I saw that question, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you had sent them to me a few days ago, and I looked them over, as I often do. Yiska knows me, and I'm a very last-minute preparer. She, <laughs> you know, she'll ask me a few days in advance, the biography and the questions, and, you know, and so on. And when we've taught together, you always want the texts in advance. Really? I'm like walking into class still trying to figure out what I'm teaching <laughs> them many times. Not quite that bad, but about an hour before. Okay. Uh, so... Um, when I saw that question, I really froze because, like, how do you choose a text? How do you choose a Torah teaching when, when there are so many? Um, and then as I allowed myself to relax and listen to my cold mama daka, I thought, oh, of course, it's, um, it's the creation of human beings, the Zachar Nekeva Barautam. And it's the Midrashim. And I'd like to share a few with you because please, really, please, um, please, that's where really. I find myself continuously going back to find inspiration and um and and you know i mentioned that i've uh, i've i found my own you know within the enormous world of jewish text jewish beliefs the i mean there's so much to to choose from i've really moved away i've spent a lot of time moving away from scharva onesh in terms of the the checks and the x's that god is writing next to my name I deeply believe that all of our actions come with consequence, and that's really what I think Sefer Devarim is about, that everything we do, all of the choices we make, um, are redolent with uh, potential you know, outcome, um, sometimes fallout, sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes in the positive sense. And really, when I, I realized that was where I was heading in my mind, I thought, oh, it's the whole relationship between God and human beings from the moment they're created. And... Um, and this dynamic, the, the idea that God creates essentially a flawed creature, a creature that is able to choose and make mistakes. And God desires that, <sighs> that, that ability to make good and bad choices, the rights and the wrongs, uh, without intervening. And, and you know, I'm going to quote Heschel, God in search of man, man in search of God. Meaning, I, we tend to spend a lot of time thinking about man in search of God and not enough time thinking about God in search of man and what that space looks like in between. And so um, the Midrashim, which I absolutely love, they're in Breshid Rabbah and it's chapter, Parshachet, uh, chapter 8. Um, there are multiple, multiple suggestions, really beautiful, beautiful Midrash. And, um, and if I might pause for a moment to say, if you really want to understand how Midrash never intended to be an absolute interpretation of text, <laughs> that it wasn't trying to be historical truth or the truth, open up Parshachet and count how many different Amoraim bring so different thoughts about why God creates Zachar v'nekeva, now male and female. And the reason I keep using male and female rather than Adam or humans is because I want to remind the readers and myself continuously 
that male and female were created at once together. Right? We were created in the image of God. And we often get very stuck in the second creation story where a woman is created from man. But I'm much more intrigued and inspired by the first story mm-hmm. where God creates Zachar and Nekeva together as a reflection of the Tzalem Elohim. And I have no, I'm actually going to pause because I have no doubt you have something to say about that because Hasidu definitely speaks about uh, that, that the completion of the, of the male-female or, or two people creating into one uh, the Shekhinah. So I'm curious to know if you have anything that comes to mind. Um, it, it has to do with Tikkun. Yes. Uh, and you actually, you mentioned it a few minutes ago that we have been created imperfect. So as long as Adam and Chava were together, there was perfection. They had to be separated in order to reconnect because in the space of the separation is where the good choices are made, the bad choices are made, honor is cultivated, hurt happens, anger, forgiveness, teshuva, being unified, uh, intimacy, feeling distance. That's where that's where real living occurs in the in the being imperfect. But we always are striving. Our our mandate, our shlichut, our mission is to bring completion from that place of, uh, I'd say, spiritual existential threat. In, in order to feel that our life does have value, it does have meaning. We have to, we yearn for that. Where does the yearning come from? The first chapter, when we were, when we had this experience of more of a perfect space, that's a very reoccurring teaching in, in all of Hasidut. Yeah. yeah, and so, yeah. you know, when you were speaking, and, and I really love that we play off each other, we start learning together. And, I love it. Um, yeah. Is, you know, the, the words that come to mind is the cycle of rupture and reconciliation. And of course, the reconciliation is all stronger after a rupture and yeah. growth. And that brings me to Leonard Cohen's anthem, right? Rings the bells that still can ring. There is no perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's where the light shines through. Meaning, yes, it's in the cracks that the light gets in. And of course, then you get to Kabbalah and Hasidu, you know, the idea of, of um, the, the primordial light or the Or Haganus, right? The hidden light coming through the cracks. And uh, yeah, just very powerful relationship that we cultivate with one another and with God. And so um, the, the Midrash I want to share with you is... Um, is number five, I think it's number five, yeah. And uh, Rabbi Shimon, uh, Rabbi Shimon brings this idea that the Holy One, blessed be he, goes to uh, consult with the ministering angels and they form themselves into groups and parties, right? It's like the con- Congress, Senate, House, Knesset, even more so, right? And um, and some of them say, let him be cre- let them be created, let them not be created. So you have this uh, 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 unbelievable um, battle going on in the heavens between the angels and really the angels actually end up becoming the virtues because doing a very clever play on a verse in Tehillim in Psalms uh, there's this idea of chesed ve'emet nifgashu tzedek v'shalom nashku the midrashic author takes this idea of um, of loving kindness and truth meeting and then um, justice and peace um, now in the in the Hebrew it's they kissed but really nashak and neshak, right? Kissing and, and armor, armor or weaponry. And what it creates is this battle between two sets of virtues. So you have chesed, uh, loving kindness and truth fighting from the idea that they met, but they met in battle. And then righteousness and peace combating each other. And loving kindness says, let man be created uh, because they will dispense of acts of love. 
And it's true, meaning human beings are capable of tremendous acts of loving kindness towards one another. There is nothing uh, you know, quite like that in any other part of the, uh, of the created world. And truth equally says, let them not be created because they are false. They have falsehood. And of course, one of the first things we do after creation is lie, both in both stories, you know, in, in many of the stories. And, uh, and, and there is no truth there. I mean, truth is correct. You can't really argue with truth. And then um, Tzedek, justice says, let them be created because they will perform acts of justice. Uh, also, you know, human beings are capable of that. And peace says, let them not be created because the world is full of strife, right? That man, is, man will bring strife into the world. Human mm. beings will be, bring war into the world. And it's so true, right? And then God basically took truth and cast it to the ground, right? Which is such an amazing, like the thunderbolt, right? Uh, God throws down truth. Mm -hmm. And there are so many ways to understand that. First of all, God now has a two for one, right? So you've got chesed and tzedek against uh, shalom that's left. No big deal. Now he, yeah, God has a real mandate to create without uh, this locked struggle between uh, two and two. And then by throwing truth to the ground, giving human beings perhaps more of a chance of finding the truth, saying, okay, I hear you, uh, but I'm, I'm going to give humans more of an opportunity to seek truth by putting you down there on the ground in the earth where human with beings... The human, with, with the human beings, yeah. yeah. And, um, and, you know, a lot of the Midrashim here play with this idea that God has to deny part of God's self, whether it's truth or whether it's the idea that evil is also going to come into the world in order to create this, this uh, God hiding from God's self the truth or hiding from God's self what the consequence of creating human beings is going to be. And the last part is, um, you know, while the ministering angels were arguing with each other and disputing, the Holy One, blessed be he, created created Adam. And then God says to them, what can you avail? Man has already been made. And, you know, there's something humoristic about yeah. it. The whole thing has humor. There, there is some humor in these midrashim. But, um, but this idea of God's desire to create human beings, or at least the way the Midrash, what the Midrash picks up on is it makes no rational sense. If God is looking straight at what human beings are going to bring into the world, war and evil and corruption and falsehood, and we do bring all that, but we also have these unbe this unbelievable capacity <laughs> for greatness and we can reach inside ourselves and do these unbelievable acts of loving kindness for one another and sacrifice. And so, um, you know, so if you say to me, where I go back to that all the time, that God recognizes that we're flawed, that we're in constant relationship with the world, with one another, with God, and that this cycle of rupture and reconciliation, which is going to make up our relationship from the moment we're born until we die, with everything we come into contact with, is something that God desires for irrational reasons, meaning it's something that makes God more complete. And what I'm also hearing, it reminds me of a teaching, it's especially apropos in the month of Kislav, as we move towards Hanukkah, also from the Midrash, Tzedah, A little bit of light pushes away so much darkness. So yes, we lie, we cause wars, we make problems, on the other hand, when we do good, when we really exemplify and show honor to being created with Salomon Hakim, if you could measure it, which of course we can't, but if you could quantify it, you need just to do a little, and it can push away so much. 
And that really brings me, if we're talking about light, how could I not think about this at Hanukkah? Uh, there are two midrashim, and I, I feel like maybe we talked about them in Limud. But um, in Genesis, again, another midrashim, Genesis Rabbah, talks about um, the, the sun first setting Saturday night, that God allowed the sun to remain uh, shining until after Shabbat, so that Adam's first Shabbat, their first Shabbat, would be uh, in the light. And then there's absolute terror when the sun sets and there's darkness. And, um, and God made them find two flints, which they struck against one another, right? And, and created light and created fire. And, and this partnership, right? God isn't going to create the fire. God is going to show us how to create so that we're not completely vulnerable and passive in our relationship. Mm-hmm. They're bringing this little, and, and the two flints, how much light did the brute bring into the world? But the difference between utter darkness and a little fire is enormous. And, and this really is a contrast, in, in my opinion, or a rejection of the Greek uh, mythology that Prometheus has to steal the fire. Mm-hmm. In our narrative, yeah. God shows Adam how to create fire. So he, he, God is not afraid of giving us the power to create. It doesn't threaten God that we're going to go down and 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 conquer the world and dominate the world as long as we follow covenantal rules, awareness, consideration for the animals and for the plants and for the trees and for one another. It doesn't threaten God that we're going to innovate and 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 so on. And um, and it's really I think a, a very beautiful idea. This partnership, this synergy. I'm not. Giving you the light is one thing. Teaching you how to create the light makes you a much more independent person who then is free to explore, uh, yeah. you know. And Chassidut teaches that that flame, that fire, that spark is the soul in Mishlei, Ner Hashem Nishmat Adam. That's it. We have it inside. We have it inside of yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That bringing out that light from within us. Yeah. And and of course that then connects to the idea of Tzalem Elokim, right? That the Ner Elokim is this, we were created in the image of God. And and by the way, in that dialogue we had, that was one of the things uh, the Christian theologian said quite a few times, meaning he, he, he believes that we are all created in the image of God, despite his theology, right? Despite this very rigid or seemingly rigid theology where, you know, only accepting Jesus is is the way to get to truth, um, he still sees we're all created in the image of God. And so I think if we could really operate mm. with that as our baseline, that we see every single person who's created in the image of God, um, even, regard, you know, within reason, regardless of choices they make. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, even when they mm-hmm. make mm-hmm. evil, wicked choices, they were still created in the image of That's God. Right. They just extinguished that flame. Oh, thank you. That's a beautiful teaching. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yes. You, you know, you inspire me when we learn together. I know. I love. We just... We've done many. We've done many co-teachings yeah, together. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Yeah. And it was just a year ago we were in the we Limud, Limud, UK. I yes. I yes. was thinking that. Yeah. Okay. So the third question is: How do you see your role as a voice of change mm-hmm. in the Jewish world, and actually in the world at large? So. You know, if you look at the world at large, it's very big. (laughs) If you look at the Jewish world, it's very big. I really try to um, just teach from within my kol dvama, my voice, um, where I go. You know, whether it's at a limud, whether it's in a classroom, whether it's at Matan or Pardes or on a podcast. And um, you realize after 17 years you begin to have a certain amount of reach of what you're saying speaks to people. And so um, my, you know, particularly in the last few years where I've become more proactive about speaking on matters having to do with sexuality and Judaism, 
um, there's so much search for meaning and so much search for uh, connection and inclusion. And I'm not just talking about LGBT, I'm talking about you know, people, single people who remain single for many years who are looking for intimacy and love and, and, and questioning what Judaism is offering them uh, and so on. Um, you feel that you, people begin to, to, to turn to you. They've heard you speak, they wanna hear more. Uh, part of what prompted my writing is people saying, when are you gonna, are you gonna write a book on this topic? Uh, not just about sexuality, also about gender. Um, and so I would say that, that I see myself as an educator. And um, you know, I've had friends come over and even when I talk to their children, they're like, oh, she's educating again, right? But in, in a positive way, right? You, I, I'm acutely aware of the potential for uh, the potential of good education to be transformative. Mm. That's just what I was going to ask you. Mm -hmm. yes, it's more than just disseminating information. Yes. Yeah. It's more than just giving someone facts. They don't need us, especially today with technology. Right. We, we're needed for something much more profound, much more deep, much more important. Right. And what I, I think I try to do is give them permission, right? Oh. Yeah, and so often um, one of the strengths I think I have as an edu educator is listening to the students, not just imposing ideas, but also um, listening to the, you know, creating this circular motion in the classroom. Where I'm teaching, yes, I bring a lot of, of, of knowledge and a lot of ideas and my own interpretation, but also giving permission to them to e ask the questions and to, to interpret alongside, with, alongside me. And sometimes they come up with phenomenal, as you know, right? <laughs> phenomenal ideas. And you're like, wow, that just transformed my way of looking at the text. Thank you. And, and I think that's a successful interaction educationally. I always tell my students, like this year at Pardes, you have one teacher. I have 15. Right, <laughs> right. In my class. Said. Yes. <clears throat> so I have a follow-up question mm -hmm. before we get to the fourth question. Yes, in course. light of what you just shared, this transformative experience, this seeing you as the agent, mm -hmm. as the shalicha, so to speak, mm -hmm. is it because you look at the world and because of your core values, because of your sense of authentic self, you realize... I need to be part of a change or or and slash or is because you feel regardless of what's going on externally you feel called upon from within wow I have to think for a moment I didn't know by the way listeners I didn't know I was going to ask Muhammad that question it really came about. Yeah, it's certainly not on the script. Right? Yeah, it's not it, on the it really came about by what you, how you understand yourself as a voice of change. Right. So, give me the called upon from within, or what was the first way? you The put first it? was, you have your core values. Right. You you have your inner core sense of being, and you look out at the world and you realize, I have to help change. Mm. There's injustice. There's segregation. There's bigotry. There's there's abuse. There's, there's there are a lot of social ills, spiritual ills, cultural ills, and my values demand compel me to want to help change this. Right. Or is it something from within, as opposed to the external? Nachon. Yes. So or, or, I would say it's been you know the, the you know I'm not trying to cop out by saying a little of both. I think you know 
30 years ago when I was a young college student at Stern College and there was a lot of anger in me at the injustice of the patriarchy and you know and and the discrimination gender discrimination I thought was in in Orthodox Judaism. Again, I never really considered leaving, but I was in, and so then I felt very much like from within, I need to begin to foster change. And uh, and so it often starts with external or situational factors, mm. and and I, I've become less angry. I become a little more patient. That doesn't mean that at times I'm not extremely frustrated and saddened and disappointed. Those are good words also. I would say I'm less angry, though. Uh, I have more of a wisdom or a breadth of understanding of process and uh, and what we can expect. And sometimes I wonder if that's not a cop-out or a uh, an acceptance, right, a passivity. But uh, I think, you know, 30 years of trying to work with it from within and, and feeling there has been movement, not just for myself, joining cumulative groups, circles of people who are working together is very powerful. But I think it also ends up coming from within because once you you recognize the pain and, uh, and and suffering, and I'm using some strong words that come about as a result of certain ways of interpreting Torah or perpetuating tradition, um, you end up feeling like you have no choice but to 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 be there with them. And then that's not just external; that becomes internal. And you have to acknowledge that this is uh, part of what's happening, whether it's the agunot. Or as I mentioned, the the you know the religious LGBT members of our community who are um, who are in a lot of pain, and I'm not coming to bring any answers, uh, but I'm saying I think we need to hold the pain, whether it's the Palestinian-Israeli dialogue. I can no longer ignore um, my my presence here without also acknowledging that that presence is painful for another people and and it's complicated and I can't simplify the complexity and so that's more from within meaning the external is to go out and try to join dialogue groups and communities and and teach and so on but then you absorb some of that and recognize this is really now part of how I view things my entire lens has shifted not beautiful beautiful I, I sensed it would be an end rather than an or Thank you. (laughs) So my last, um, my fourth question, which Mm -hmm. is a part A and part B, they're quite related, but what is your one ask Mm -hmm. of status quo Jewish leadership, both whether it be rabbinical, educational, and status quo, however you understand status quo? Mm -hmm. What is your ask of them? So I would say first and foremost, um, I really might my, my ask we need to change the marriage system I mean that's could you speak to that? yes I'm gonna speak about that uh, and I just spoke about this yesterday with a student I love Jewish tradition I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm on one hand a feminist on the other hand I am you know an ortho, I'm an Orthodox Jewish feminist in all of the complexity with each of those <laughs> definitions um, really again I live in Israel so it's not so much Orthodox but religious observant um, and I recognize that and tradition and is important and, and I'm moved by how powerful our survival and our, you know, when I open the Talmud and see we're still doing certain things that I, I read about in the Talmud and the, and the, the, the thread that connects and so on, I'm, I'm very moved by that. And when I go to a Jewish wedding and I see the, the, the pieces of tradition that have nurtured us and, and sustained us and so on, 
Um, you know, I, I, I quake a little as I say what I'm about to say. Nonetheless, I can no longer stand idly by and watch a wedding without being acutely aware that the kiddushin, from the word kedusha, kadosh, is no longer serving the purpose of hallowing the space between the couple. Oh, gosh. Um, and that is because, very simply put, it is a one-directional uh, legal act. The man takes the woman. There is nothing reciprocal in the legality of what we call kiddushin, even though conceptually we talk about kiddushah, the holiness that binds the couple together. Legally, the man acquires soul rights to the woman's sexuality. That is the sum total of what happens under the chuppah when he says the words, you are now uh, betrothed to me, you are now mekudeshet um, to me, and gives her in, uh, the ring, and she accepts the ring. She is now what we call an eshet ish, and I can no longer see only the beauty in that moment. What what, I, uh, for, for the listeners that yes. may not know, what does eshet ish mean? An eshet ish is a married woman. Now, that means, oh, okay, a married woman. But it's more than that, because halakhically, according to Jewish law, adultery is only committed by a married woman with a man not her husband. Now, I'm actually going to put in parentheses, a Jewish man not her husband, which ironically leads the way for a woman to commit non-halakhic adultery with a non-Jewish man. And Shulchan Aruch says uh, explicitly that is not adultery. Um, the reason that is a big deal, I mean, adultery is a big deal, is first of all, a man does not commit halachic adultery if he has an affair or a sexual relationship with a woman who is not married. In other words, because men were allowed to be polygamous, um, even today, it is not considered to be defined as adultery by Jewish law if a man has multiple partners who are not married. Conceptually, it is. No woman goes into a marriage wanting her husband to fool around. I'm talking about legally, and that's a very important distinction, because if a woman has a child while she's married with another man, that child is branded by a, a blemish that is, that is a blight. There's no other word. It's called a mamzer, and that child now is stigmatized, and, and if discovered, and often it is discovered for a lot of reasons. A blacklist is kept by the rabbinate. Uh, it's certainly in Israel, basically saying this child can't marry other children. It's very complicated. I don't want to confuse the readers. The upshot is that for divorce, just as the man solely legally takes the woman in marriage, he is the only one who can release the woman because he owns, essentially, he has full jurisdiction over her sexual rights. And when he releases her, he actually says, you are now permitted to every man, right? That's, that's exactly the language. And I really, I really do think, um, and a lot of work is being done. I don't want to discredit or minimize, even over the thousands of years, work that has been done to try to force recalcitrant husbands to divorce their wives. Not enough. In the last 50 years, a lot more. Even now, though, when a too creative solution is found within the sources, there are ultra-Orthodox communities that go absolutely ballistic. This really is one of the most threatening pieces. But, um, but what I really think I, we need to do is rethink Kiddushin, meaning if we would remove that piece and we would try to think of another angle through which we could create commitment and fidelity and obligation and so on, we would solve so many of the moral problems that arise in the wake of this situation. And, um, and so you're saying to me, I, I, it's heavy. I'm sorry, I'm bringing something very heavy. It's something I feel very, you know, I feel like it's 
an Achilles heel, a perversion of what I think is the Torah trying to be a more moral text, uh, trying to drive us to greater uh, godliness, which involves also morality and humanity and so on. Um, and, and I think we are stuck. And I know others will say, oh, it's only a small percentage. It's only this. It's only that. But that's just apologetics. At its root, in a world in which women are equal partners uh, with men and consider themselves to be equal, there's a fundamental imbalance. And I, I, I don't have at all the rabbinic shoulders to do this. And there are many wonderful men and women fighting this fight. But I think this is something that if you ask me, what, I would, what would I ask first to change? It would be that. And what I'm hearing is it's not a Band-Aid. This is surgery. Yeah, this is surgery. Yeah. So the B part of this, yeah. let me just hold space for one. <laughs> I just yeah. have to hold what you just said. That's remarkable. Thank you. Thank you for really being courageous to share that with listeners from all over the world and beyond. Mm -hmm. The B part to this is what is your one ask of status quo Jewish congregations and Jewish, and Jewish communities. communities in general. So what I really ask is, yes, yeah. right, right. So different because I'm asking, you know, the rabbinic establishment to find a, 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 a solution to something that's fundamental. And, um, and I have faith in the halachic system and I believe we can, you know, we can do that. Um, but we, you know, how long it will take and how many women will suffer. I don't know. And sometimes men suffer. Um, what I'd like to ask of congregations and communities is to be less threatened by the other in the community, whether it's women or people with disabilities or couples that don't fit into the ideal box that we want people to fit into. Um, and what I'd like is for there to be, I'm, I'm gonna bring it back to where I started, Human dignity, Tzalem Elohim, like look at the godliness, the neshama in every person. Hmm. Um, you know, inclusion of other, I think, is what I, partnerships. I'm not asking all congregations and communities to restructure themselves in a way that's inauthentic. At the same time, I think we sometimes get stuck on politics and on ego and on fear and I think we could be a little less afraid. I think there are ways of being more um, compassionate and inclusive and tolerant and uh, uh, towards other. And, um, and I think sometimes out of sheer, you know, either passivity or fear or ignorance, we, we choose not to do so. And I think I'd, I'd like every community, and especially now with COVID, um, I've heard beautiful stories from my students um, that you know how communities are continuing to reach those most vulnerable, um, because a lot of our strength as community and congregation is in the interaction, in the synagogue, in the community, noticing who's coming and who's not coming, and we don't have that at all. And and while I don't endorse in any way what the Haredi community has done in in not following guidelines, on the other hand, I recognize that what they were saying is. How can we continue to function? It's not just about their synagogues and yeshivot, which it is, but even the amount of chesed, the loving kindness they show to one another is all face-to-face, -face, the soup kitchens, the charity, the charity boxes. Many, visiting the sick, we can't and, even... uh, visiting those who are sitting shiva, who are mourning their dead, burying their dead, meaning our entire structure is based on this uh, on, on chesed, really, that's what, that's what the Midrash understood humans are capable of. 
And so I'd like to call on congregations and communities to push further and deeper in finding ways of showing chesed, loving kindness to Maybe one another. Maybe to be more creative? Yes, well, certainly we need to be more creative. creative. And, you know, going back to something I said in the beginning, I'm not asking them to delegitimize the beliefs that they hold dear, but that has nothing to do with being able to hold or see or, or include uh, those that, that want to be brought in, uh, whatever that looks like. And so that's what I would Oh, say. that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And being created in the image of the Creator... We innately have the capacity, the need, the yearning to create. And that means moving into a space which may be uncomfortable. It may be a little bit insecure, Mm -hmm. but we have to do it. And that's what I'm hearing from you. Well, thank you so much. That's eloquent. So well put. Uh, Wow. So in conclusion... Uh, what if the listeners, and I'm sure many of them will, want to follow up with you? How can they? What? So they're certainly welcome to reach out. I don't. I am on Facebook, but I don't often check my Facebook messages, so please don't messenger me there. But you can send me an email, Nechama Barish, N-E-C-H-A-M-A-B-A-R-A-S-H at gmail.com. And maybe put in the subject heading um, podcast or Yiska's podcast, and then I'll know to, uh, to, to know what, what it is, uh, what is about, what you're following up. From. Fantastic, fantastic. So I thank you very much. This was such a, another great moment. A treat for me as <laughs> yes, well, Yiska. Yeah, I, I always find it inspiring to sit here with you, yeah, and, and thank you for yeah. the opportunity. And look at all the people that get to uh, hear this now. Amazing. Yeah. So, listeners, thank you all for your focus, for listening. For, a, uh, for your support. And I bless us all with revealing more and more light in the month of Kislev as we move towards celebrating the miracle of light. Amen, amen, amen. Shalom, v'kotuv, lehitraot.